time for the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent ETA, Agent Ether, and Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check us out on Discord, Facebook, and Reddit. Links in the description. This week's episode, from the files of Project Blue Book, Part 3. You make it sound like it's a continuation, but it's really not. It's a separate episode. It holds up on its own. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just sort of a series of episodes where we dig dig through the files of Project Blue Book and grab whatever looks interesting to us at the time. This time around, yep, yep. I did a search. I never did a search before. Usually I just go to like a date or a time, you know, like a year or whatever. This time I was looking for UFO reports from Santa Rosa, California, where I live. And it turns out I found one. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, two? Nice. One or two. I don't know. Whichever. But yeah, so that's how that's how I did it this time around. Last time around, I wanted to find stuff in 1966 that was somewhat similar to the swamp gas sightings. But uh, how did you guys mm-hmm. organize yourselves this time? I kind of just randomly uh, scrolled through some, some of the listings of uh, different uh, events and just picked two. I, I happened to pick two in 1948 just because I, I thought both of them were kind of cool stories. I just, you know. Ended up doing two from 19, 1948. Okay. And Agent Ether, what was your plan of attack? Well, my birthday's coming up. I'm getting older. And so I just searched for birthday and oh, okay. picked the file that came up under that search. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nice. Can't wait. Oh. Can't wait to hear it. But yeah, I only did one in Santa Rosa, but I did go down the rabbit hole and find some other really cool stuff. That always happens. Yeah. Always happens. There's... I kid you not, I could, if I had nothing else to do, I I could just read through these files all day. And this is just Blue Book, by the way. There's a ton of other files. If you go to like Isaac Coy's website or you go to the Black Vault or where, you know, a couple of different places where there's repositories, there's just no end to it. You can look through files all day long about reports and you can look through newspaper articles and just stuff that nobody's ever heard of. Quite a few of them are actually pretty interesting. But all right, well, before we get into the files, I would just like to apologize for this week's episode being a little bit late. See, what happened was we went on vacation to the mountains to uh, to Truckee to go skiing and, you know, during spring break because we're weird and that's what we and do. You got abducted. <laughs> I wish. No, so I brought, uh, I remember to bring <laughs> my computer. I brought my files. I brought my audio interface. I brought my headphones, but I forgot the power cable for the laptop. <laughs> and yeah. at first I was like, all right, well, I'll give it a try. Maybe there'll be enough battery power to get through some of these edits. But some of the software I use is pretty intent, uh, pretty processor intensive or whatever. So before I even got through uh, processing the, like the noise removal and that kind of stuff, before I even got halfway through that, my battery was already like two thirds of the way gone. So I was like, ah, this just isn't going to happen. So I just, you know, saved the project and decided to shut her down and have another beer and just sort of relax and enjoy my vacation instead of working. (laughs) But anyways, 
long story short, I guess, that's why the episode was out late this week. I'll have you guys know that I did plan on working during vacation to get it out by Thursday, but unfortunately, I'm stupid and I forgot to bring the power cable. <laughs> it was a fun vacation, though. Unfortunately, no yeah, UFOs. Like that always happens, though. Yeah, yeah, always. I always forget something. But I was, I was, we were staying next to a lake. I was hoping we'd see one of them lake UFOs, but unfortunately not. I looked too, guys. I looked out the window, uh, glanced out the window at least five or six times, and I didn't see any <laughs> UFOs. <laughs> Are you... Are you talking about like one of those submersible ones like comes out of the lake or goes into it? Yeah. Or sometimes they just hover above the lake and kind of suck out some water or something. You know, they, they do all kinds of oh, stuff yeah, in yeah. the water. There's many, many accounts. But yeah, usually it's mm -hmm. the ones where they go into or out of the water. Maybe they got a secret base under there. Maybe it's like a Bigfoot. Who knows? It could be anything. I like to think like, like that they have a base down there, you know? And they're yeah. doing like all sorts of crazy experiments. And that's where they take the people that they abduct, you know? Yeah, that'd you be awesome. You think you're getting taken out into space or something, but you're actually getting taken into a lake, you know? Or an ocean or whatever, you know. Could be. Could be, yeah. All right. I got several files here, so I'll jump right into it. Maybe I'll do my small files. I got three small files, and then I got one big file. So I'll do the three small ones, then I'll hand it over to you guys, and then I'll get back to the big file, because then that way if it's going episodes going too long then I can just cut that one a little short because there's a lot to talk about on that one, but I can maybe skip over some stuff. All right, so this is a, a report from Santa Rosa, California. But if you look at the description card, it's kind of weird because it says that it's from Central California. Uh, I don't think there's a Santa Rosa in Central California, but, um, you know, whatever. So this one happened on the 4th of August, 1952. An unidentified object was first observed visually at 1315 Pacific Daylight Time. That's 1.15 in the afternoon. On the 4th of August, 1952, it was sighted again at 1400 Pacific Daylight Time and a third time at 15.15. So that's 1.15, 2 o'clock, and 3.15. So it's spaced apart there pretty evenly by, you know, 45 minutes or an hour and a half or whatever it is. It was observed approximately for five minutes each time. It was described as a round disc resembling a ball, silver in color, and it had an estimated speed from 50 to 70 miles per hour. No audible sounds were reported. At first, it was an irregular course, later straightening out in a northerly direction. The object was estimated at an altitude of 15,000 feet. The observers redacted, redacted, Santa Rosa, California, telephoned, Redacted and Mrs. Redacted, Santa Rosa, California, were located at GOC Post in Santa Rosa, California. Uh, and I'm not really sure what a GOC Post is. I tried Googling it and I didn't, couldn't really, you know, guard on command or whatever. It came up with some stuff that didn't really make sense. But if, hey, if somebody knows what GOC Post is, maybe let us know. But I'm assuming it's some sort of like watch post where people will watch, I guess. I don't know. The object appeared to be four miles northwest of the GOC post. The weather was very clear with winds southwest to northeast at 15 miles per hour. Meteorological activity, physical evidence of the sighting, identification action taken, and aircraft in the area were reported as negative. The, um, what does this say? No information is available to determine the identity of the object sighted. 
concurs with that of the preparing officer. Okay, that's just the comments. Yeah, so the this was the report. The card says that it was probably a weather balloon, but uh, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But what they're describing, I guess, could be a weather balloon, but it also maybe wasn't. I mean, weather balloons kind of would it go away and come back and then go away and come back again? It's, I could, I de- it definitely could, depending on which way the wind was blowing. But um, I don't know. Wait, did it say what time, what direction the wind was blowing here? Let's see where. Uh, what direction it was traveling. I mean, yeah, in a northerly direction. And they said that the um, the wind was southwest to northeast. So I suppose that could match. And it, But it says the wind was 15 miles per hour, not 50 to 70. But again, if it was up there at 15,000 feet, you're talking about like a different band of wind. I'm not sure exactly what you call it, but there'd be like different jet streams at different altitudes. And I'm pretty sure they can even go in different directions. This isn't necessarily that interesting of a sighting as far as sightings go, because, you know, it very well could be a weather balloon, but it was in Santa Rosa, damn it. And I wanted to do one from Santa Rosa. (laughs) Even even so, it is it is interesting, even if it's not necessarily that interesting. All right. I got another one that I noticed from Healdsburg, California, which is just north of here. Well, not just just not just north, but maybe. I don't know, half an hour drive, give or take. It's where there's a bunch of wineries up there. If you want to go wine tasting, you go to Healdsburg, California. Some good stuff. All right, anyways, this one was on the 14th of March, 1958. And it was a ground visual. This is a really short description, and they didn't really investigate it that much. They just kind of took the report. But it is marked as unidentified. Whereas the last report, a lot of the reports we talk about are actually identified or they're, you know, they, they mark it off as something. It's pretty unusual to see an unidentified one because they didn't like those. They wanted to get rid of those as much as possible. The duration was two minutes. And here's the description. Balloon shaped object, three feet in diameter, blackish object approached from the West, touched the ground momentarily, and then took off to the East turned south, and then disappeared. And the comments are, no analysis leading to conclusion made. Object at close range, since observers indicated that object touched ground at 150 yards and then took off again. Balloon ruled out since a, since a, uh, oh yeah, there it goes. Sorry, it's kind of faint. Balloon ruled out since leak balloon since a leaky balloon, I'm guessing is what it means, since a leaky balloon would have stayed down and not taken off again. Flight smooth and radical change in direction. At same time, altitude not constant with this analysis. Case unidentified at this time. So yeah, that's the summary card. If you go and read the brief description by the witness, it's um, it's probably not a balloon moving around like this. This was kind of a weird one, but... That's all the data. It was just one observer, and there was not a whole lot of data collected. So, again, it's not necessarily a great sighting, but it's still a really kind of a weird and interesting sighting. I thought that one was a lot of fun, even though it was just one person that saw it. But, uh, yeah, that wasn't Santa Rosa, but it was Healdsburg. All right. Up next, I have another really short one. This one is from the 16th of January, 1961, and it was viewed from Santa Rosa Island, near Los Angeles. (laughs) So uh, there's a couple of Santa Rosas that came up. One of them was a Santa Rosa Island near Florida, which actually had a few, few sightings associated with it. 
but I didn't get into those specifically. Anyways, the length of observation was three to four seconds. Uh, it says a brief summary is that a round object the size of a basketball, bluish white, like an electrical arc, no definite formation. Object seen by pilot passing off port side. Object broke into several smaller pieces, appeared 15 degrees, 280 degrees. Object descended and broke up into many pieces and then faded out. So what does that sound like to you? Well, yeah, sounds like a meteorite. Sounds like a meteorite. And that's what it's marked as in the file. It's marked as probably a meteorite. But? The comments say a description of object is characteristic of a meteor breaking up in the Earth's atmosphere. Now, I didn't want to go into too much detail on this one because um, it does sound a lot like a meteor. But if anybody's interested in looking through a case file and just seeing how complicated even a simple meteorite can get... This is a really interesting case because this was actually seen from the border from San Diego all the way up to Marin. And even though this is the statement of one witness that I'm reading the, um, the su summary card for, there were actually thousands and thousands of people calling this in to police stations all over the place. And if you look again at the description, it says a round object the size of a basketball. Now, picture in your head how big a basketball is, right? Have you ever seen a meteorite that big? That's pretty big. That's really big, in fact. And do you think that a meteorite would travel from San Diego to Marin? That's about 600 miles. Does that seem like, uh, I don't know, I'm not a, a, you know, an astronomer, but it seems to me that if you see a meteorite in, uh, you know, in San Diego, Probably somebody 600 miles away is not going to be able to see that same meteorite. I just don't know. I mean, I have no idea, but it seems to me that you wouldn't see it that far away. And it seems to me that it wouldn't travel that far. But if you look through the file, there's people describing it as being so bright. It's like lighting up the, the sky and making it look like daylight and stuff like that. And even if it was just a meteorite or multiple people reporting different, very large meteorites, it's still a really fascinating case to read through. But I guess I'll just leave that one at that because um, after reading through that file at the end of the day, even though it was a very bizarre case, you really can't, there's not a whole lot of evidence saying that it was something extraordinary, even though if it was a meteorite, it was a very bizarre meteorite. So that was a fun case to kind of peruse through, but um, I just read the title card there. I didn't go through all the many, many different ins and outs of that one. All right. So those are my short cases and then i have a long one to do after that but i'll hand it over to one of the other agents who wants to go next it's all you eta all right i'll get my couple little stories over uh over with here <laughs> um okay so the first one that i have happened on october 1st 1948 and it was actually 25 miles southeast of uh, fargo north dakota oh um it happened around or well, in, in between Nine in twenty uh, nine twenty seven p.m. Mountain Standard Time. <laughs> um, so uh, the probably the 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 best person to to quote um, as far as like a a witness to this uh, site would be or the sighting would be a, an an Air National Guard pilot uh, and his name was Lieutenant George F. Gorman. Um, and there was four other people that also saw, uh, saw this also, including uh, tower controllers and stuff like that. Um, so at any rate, what they saw was a small, like from their position, a six to eight inch round white ball of light. And they said that it was flat, 
like a like a disc, um, and, and like you know, so it stood out quite a bit to them, um, and they were all looking at it at the same time, which is a, an important uh, note, I think. And so uh, this disc started to blink off and on at slow speeds, so it wasn't like pulsing like roll like roll like like fast like a strobe light or something like that. It was kind of going slowly, like 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 brighter than dimmer, like you know, and um. That's kind of weird, I think, because that like you don't see that kind of stuff with like, for example, a weather balloon, which is one of the ex- explanations for this one, because like when light is, is reflected off of that, it's uh, it's not going to dim or lighten, you know, all that much. It's going to pretty much stay, you know, the same um, brightness. I guess it doesn't you could say, really right? sound uh, astrological so, either. Um, well, unless it was the light refracting from the planet Venus, or perhaps a mirage of Canopus, or whatever. <laughs> I could explain it. Yeah, it, def- it, it definitely could be that. So, um, so the object actually was was spotted by uh, some a private pilot as well, uh, and he was actually the first one to to spot it. Um, and his name was uh, Doctor A. D. Cannon, and he had um, another passenger with him uh, named uh, Enar Nelson. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that first name right, but. That's what it looks like to me. So they're on a, a Piper Club, a Piper Cub aircraft at about 16,000 feet, uh, and they're heading north of uh, Hector Field. And uh, so they saw the, the object above them, and they estimate that the object was moving about 250 to 270 miles an hour. And um, uh, uh, that lieutenant that I had mentioned earlier, Gorman, um, he spotted it shortly after they did, but they supposedly spotted it like, you know, around the same time. So um, at any rate, the, uh, they actually radio, radioed the tower and tried to kind of like pursue the, uh, the object. And uh, like some, a little bit of, I guess, shenanigans ensued. But um, the, uh, the private pilot um, uh, landed afterwards and uh, described like, like what they had seen and like, uh, you know, um, the size of the object and everything like that. Uh, they actually scrambled a uh, an F fifty uh, one fighter airplane. I'm not real familiar with the uh, the model, but it's, I think, uh, from what I understand, a pretty fast uh, airplane. I think that was um, it. Used to be an F fifty one, and they changed it to P fifty one. So maybe it's just a P fifty one Mustang, or maybe the other way around. Maybe they changed from P to F. That could be. Yeah, maybe. I remember seeing that in a previous episode for something or other. Uh, yeah, it, it sounded familiar. I didn't look it up this time, but uh, a lot of those planes back from uh, those days are pretty damn cool looking. They're pretty bad, badass, I think. But but they're not like super fast like a jet airplane that we have nowadays, obviously. you know. So at any rate, um, so uh, Gorman has sent out a, uh, you know, uh, that airplane to go, go pursue this, uh, this object. And the closest that they say they got was about 500 feet, which actually is kind of surprising to me. And they, they say that it was at around 500 feet or 5,000 feet in elevation. And um, they, uh, they had uh, chased it to up to about 14,000 feet, but the plane actually uh, began to stall out. So they were unable to, you know, intercept the object because it was, it was moving it in an erratic fashion and like basically avoiding them, but also keeping close enough to where like they, they could still observe it, you know? So anyways, uh, it, it, they, they describe its uh, maneuvers as evasive and aggressive. 
which uh, I think is pretty, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty damn uh, specific explanation, I mean, you know, a description of, of what the, the object was doing. They said that it easily like, out, outperformed the uh, F-51 aircraft there. And um, I, I think that that, air scra- uh, that aircraft is, like, goes around 600 miles an hour, something like that. But so, that's somewhere around its top speed, so, something like that anyways. But they said that the, uh, the object dropped, like, uh, rapidly down to, like, 11,000 feet. Um, they attempted to uh, dive down on it, and the object pulled back up very fast. Uh, rose vertically until it disappeared about uh, to, I think you said like at their one o'clock position or something like that. But I don't know. It's kind of one of those, those interesting stories where, you know, they go to intercept the object and then, you know, it does, uh, cause I, I, as a pilot, I would think like you're going out to like, if they're telling you like, all right, there's something, something out there that we need to go intercepting to try to find out what it is. We don't know what it is. You know, you, you might be thinking UFO or something like that. And then, when you start chasing the chasing the damn thing, it it actually is like uh, acting like intelligently. You know what I mean? And that's kind of one of the things that uh, I would kind of I would be freaked out if I was a pilot chasing something that obviously does not look like like a, another plane. You know, I'd be kind of freaked out by that a little bit. But yeah, that's that's one of the reasons why I find that story a little. That's one of the famous cases in in ufology called the Gorman dogfight, and uh, if if it's mm-hmm. if that's what it is, which it, I'm pretty sure that's what it sounds like, uh, the official explanation of that is, can you guess? Birds. Venus. No weather balloon. <laughs> <laughs> they were having Bird. a dogfight with a weather yeah. balloon. <laughs> that's the official explanation of that one. There's a lot of. Uh... A lot of names being thrown around there. I'm surprised they're not all redacted. Like everybody's names are being included in the report. Oh yeah, that happens sometimes. Like in, in my report, they I found a spot where they redacted the names of a professor, and then on the very same page lower down, the name is unredacted. <laughs> like, Somebody right. wasn't being careful. Yeah. Well, I'm guessing I've seen that many times in the <laughs> files, and I'm guessing that when they released the files, they had all these like you know hundreds of thousands of pages. And they gave them a very small budget. So, okay, we need these out next month. Go ahead and go through them. So they just had some secretaries with, you know, a black marker going through it and just say, cross out all the names, you know? <laughs> cross out this, cross out that, mm-hmm. leave everything else. They got like five seconds per page. So just, all right, ready, go. You know, of course they're going to miss stuff. <laughs> Get it. That's that's my theory yeah. on it anyways. But yeah, 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 that's a good one though. We could actually do an entire episode on that topic. And I'm sure we will at some point because it's one of the famous ones. Oh, yeah. There's a lot you can dig into yeah, in yeah. that case. Mm-hmm, I agree. Yeah. Uh, so my second one actually happened uh, like pretty. Uh, I mean, the same month it happened uh, October 30th, 1948, and um, <clears throat> that was the sighting in Gray's Harbor, Washington, and that happened around four between 4:20 and 4:30 p.m. Um, Pacific Standard Time. Obviously, it's on the coast. So uh, this uh, uh, encounter dealt basically with uh, Lieutenant Robert L. Um, Kunzman. I'm thinking that's how you pronounce his last name. It's uh, K-U-N-Z-M-A-N. I assume it's Kunz. It sounds like Kunzman Kunz- to you guys. Kunzman? Sounds right. Yeah. Sounds sure. about right. Sure, sure. Kunzman. Yeah, whatever. Anyways. Anyways. Oh, oh sure. <laughs> so he was flying an F-82 fighter. <laughs> he was he was flying an F-82 fighter plane 
Um, and he was heading north at 8,000 feet, uh, going about 240 miles an hour. And uh, what he describes as having seen was a, a grouping of objects. Uh, and I think it's actually kind of like a, one of the, uh, I guess it's, uh, in, in my opinion, as far as like, you know, pilots describing, especially like, you know, pilots in the Air Force or, or what have you, describing stuff that they have seen. I think it's kind of one of uh, the more unique uh, descriptions. So, um, so anyways, uh, he uh, described seeing a single compact group of yellow objects heading uh, about northwest um, at a 10 o'clock position. Uh, and uh, he said they, they suddenly, uh, I guess they were in like a grouping, like, you know, kind of like grouped around each other, like a cluster, I guess you could say. And then they suddenly burst into a, um, like a line formation. And um, to him, they, he describes it, uh, them appearing to be white egg-shaped ob- objects. Um, and they actually crossed over in front of his aircraft at some point. It wasn't like super close, but uh, he got close enough to see the outline of the objects. And um, so at any rate, um, they were heading uh, at that point uh, when they crossed in front of his, uh, his, his air- aircraft. They were heading west to east. Uh, and they were still in a line formation, um, about the same, you know, uh, altitude, uh, 8,000 feet. And, um, he said at first, like, uh, he, he thought that like, you know, I must be seeing things. He actually said that he thought maybe am I seeing seagulls? Cause you know how like birds will, will fly in formation and stuff, you know, not necessarily a straight line, but Hey, they, they could, they could be a straight line. A lot of times you see that V formation, right? When, uh, when birds are migrating at least, but so at any rate, um, the objects uh, maintained um, the same altitude and horizontal uh, flight pattern. Um, and uh, then all of a sudden the, the flight, like uh, the objects, they doubled back heading, heading a different direction um, north. And they actually paralleled, they ended up paralleling his F-82 uh, fighter uh, plane there. And um, he, uh, he observed them for a period of time. It doesn't say exactly uh, how long, but um they were going at high speed and they, he, he says that they started turning translucent like, cause, uh, he could see through them, I guess, and see, you know, either clouds or, or whatever was behind them. Doesn't say, but he's, he claims that they, they turned translucent, translucent, uh, just before they disappeared and faded away. So this happened while he was observing them. He, he was looking at them and he doesn't say that they, you know, banked off to a different direction and, you know, right or left, what have you, and then disappeared, you know, cause they're going so fast. He describes them actually like basically blinking out of reality, out of existence, I guess you'd say the way he describes it, which uh, I, I think is, is pretty damn cool, <laughs> you know, cause if, if that is uh, the reality of the situation, whatever that was, was far beyond any technology we probably have. So most likely aliens, you'd have to assume. You know, could be right? like a, yeah. a cloaking device. Even. That doesn't sound normal oh, at sure. all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That actually, that's a good point. Yeah, not one bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean that's that's pretty much the gist of the story, you know. But uh, I I thought that one was interesting just because the dis- the description of like the group of uh, objects, and he also got close enough to see their outline and see you know kind of what their their they looked like. Um, didn't have any like, like super, uh, you know, in-depth details, I guess you could say, but, uh, this is another one, obviously that you could do a, a definite episode on for sure. There's a lot more details to be had, but 
um, I, I thought just the uh, the encounter itself was one of the unique ones. You know, it's one of the ones that kind of stood out to me. You know what I mean? Yeah, that sounds that sounds really weird. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a good one. I like that. So that's uh that's my two cents right there. My two stories. All right. How about you, Agent Ether? What do you got for us? All right. I got my first case, which is actually a series of reports all on the same date around the same time. And it starts off, it's like a a folder of documents. There's like 40 pages. And the first page in the, you know, Fold 3 Project Blue Book resource is a, a letter and it's signed by Hector Quintanilla and it's a request for a witness to return the Form 117, which is that Air Force questionnaire that they use when somebody witnesses a UFO. And I like how it starts out because it's very formal. It says, your name has been given to the Aerial Phenomena Office, quote, Project Blue Book, unquote, as being a witness to an unidentified flying object And it's funny because it's just so formal. It's so formal. And also, you know, it's signed by the head himself. And I'm wondering, you know, it's probably like a minion working under him. But still, that's like the head honcho at that time. So anyways, uh, the first witness filled out a report form. And it's dated on uh, August 3rd, 1968. It was an overcast night in Jeffersonville, Indiana, when someone spotted a brightly lit object below the clouds moving behind trees in his line of sight in a residential area. The total time of observation was about 20 minutes, and it started at 9 at night. The object was white, it was tinted blue and stationary. Then it would suddenly descend It fell apart and it broke into several pieces before falling towards the earth and turning red. The witness was described as a former armor, as a former army photographer in the Korean War, and he stated that after the object broke apart, he saw a plane circling around the area as if, in his words, it was hunting for something. The object itself was described as very bright about the same luminosity and shape of a satellite, but he emphasizes it was stationary and not moving. So we have a credible witness, someone with some experience in photography, and there's a plane in the area, maybe coincidence, maybe not. And much of the report is illegible, but there's some additional information The witness states there was actually a group of people, including a pilot from World War II, although that witness had no action or pilot hours. At one point in the report, the question is asked, is there any other information that's not asked that you think is important? And the witness describes another event the next evening, and it's very similar to the first The object moved across the sky this time before breaking up, but the color, size, shape, and intensity were the same as reported the night before. The witness ends his statement with, and I quote, we all believe in the possibility of flying saucers. So there's a group of people. It's not clear who they are or how they're related. And like I said, much of the report 
is illegible, but still interesting. Then the next few pages are an additional report. Uh, the same day, around 10 in the evening, there's another witness. The sighting lasted a total of four minutes. The witness was a tactical reconnaissance pilot who flew 71 missions in Germany and France and also his neighbor and wife. Now, this report is written differently than the other report, so it's much easier to read. The object was described as being ball-shaped, and it was also compared to an electric light bulb. That kind of tickled my fancy, not just a light bulb, but hmm. an electric light bulb. <laughs> Could have been, been a gas light bulb. <laughs> Could have been. The color was described as closer to reddish than white, and it had clear etch edges. And the witness said he searched all around for some kind of protrusion, but there wasn't any. The object would grow small as it moved away, but not dimmer, and it didn't change its form until it suddenly disintegrated. Hmm. That doesn't sound normal either. <laughs> the witness relates a conversation he had with his neighbor during the event, and he said to his neighbor, oh, it looks like that airplane has its landing lights on. And he and the neighbor listened for engines overhead, but they didn't hear anything. So it's passing overhead. It turns gently to the right four or five degrees. It straightens out again and flies for two more minutes. And then it disintegrates into five or six pieces and they fall behind a nearby house so they can't see them. This uh, former pilot says the cloud cover was about 95%. He judged that the clouds were 10 to 12,000 feet and the object appeared to be moving just under the clouds. And then there's one other sighting included in the folder. It's the same city, and the sighting lasted about seven minutes, but the report really isn't thorough. A lot of the information in the form is not filled out, or it's missing, or it's not clear. Like, the box is checked for, you know, this was a clear night, but then the witness also describes the moon as going in and out behind the clouds. The witness said he was in his backyard with his wife when he saw something in the sky. He describes the object as bright and luminescent, completely unlike a landing light that just seemed to disintegrate after five or six minutes before falling to the earth. So we have several sightings, a lot of them by credible witnesses, and the conclusion given was that it was a hot air balloon, not a weather balloon, but a hot air balloon, specifically a garment bag. So I guess in the 1960s, it was very popular to take dry cleaning bags. And one example would be this uh, H-frame design. So you would glue sticks together by dripping them in wax or tying them together into an H-shape. And the top of the garment or dry cleaning bag was taped up where the hanger would stick out. Five or six pencil-sized holes were punched for ventilation because without the holes, the bag would sway from side to side and probably crash. And then as a heat source, there'd be like a little platform and they'd stick 24 birthday candles on the platform to provide heat for the hot air balloon and give it lift. And that would heat up to like 140 degrees Fahrenheit, and then the balloon could ascend 1,000 to 1,500 feet, depending on the temperature and if it was a clear, calm night, 
and it would be visible for miles. There's a letter from Quintanilla to one witness, the name's redacted, and it says that they received multiple reports that night and they feel it's consistent with the plastic garment hot air balloon. And the letter reads that the balloons can be white, red, orange, or yellow in appearance, and after the candles burn down, the platform or stage mounted on can catch fire and sparks can be seen falling from it. And shortly after, the, quote, fiery pieces fall and the light dims and disappears. So, in this case, I don't know, it sounds like it could be a hot air balloon. At the same time, the pilot said he felt that it was at a height of about 10,000 feet, and the hot air balloons only went to maybe 1,500 feet. Also, I'm thinking if this plastic bag catches on fire, it's basically going to melt and then fall down. And I just, I don't know, and the candles would probably go out. I can't really see it breaking into five or six pieces that are going to be visible for a minute and then falling towards the earth. So I'm not sure on this one. But there's a lot of similar files, Blue Book files, and they have the same conclusion. There's multiple witnesses in North Highlands, California in August 1967, Malden, Massachusetts in April 1968. There were similar sightings in Illinois, Missouri, Connecticut, so all over the United States, all on different dates with the same conclusion. Hmm. Okay. So not sure what to think. That's definitely a weird one. Yeah, I didn't even know about these garment bags. I had to I had to look it up. I'm like, what is a garment bag? I guess it's just a dry cleaning bag. <laughs> well, it, it definitely doesn't sound like it'd have enough juice to get up to 10,000 feet. Yeah, that seemed kind of high you know to I mean? me, but then... He said it was below the clouds, and it's hard to judge, you know, how high up it is compared to, compared yeah. to the clouds. So. Yeah, and especially if the ground is not at sea level, but if the ground is starting a lot higher than that, right. then, you know, a thousand feet off the ground could be two thousand feet above sea level, you know? Right. That's exactly true. Yeah. So, hard to say. In, in this case, I'm kind of leaning towards the hot air balloon. Yeah. But still, there were a lot of sightings, so I thought it was kind of interesting. It's still interesting, and even if it was, you know, a usual object seen under unusual circumstances, it still makes for an interesting case. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be aliens for it to be interesting, in my opinion. No, I, I think it's a, uh, I think it's an interdimensional gray, most likely. <laughs> the lizard people. <laughs> All right, I have a second case here, and this was just the next case. So I was reading through the case with the uh, birthday candles and the hot air balloon, and the next case that came up, I just started reading it, and it was in Hazelnut, Illinois. It wasn't in the typical Air Force form. It was a typed report, and there's a reason for that. There was an investigation by William Powers at the request of Lieutenant Marley that concluded on April 9th. 1968. Mr. and Mrs. Marlowe, uh, this was a married couple, refused to communicate by letter or phone and insisted on a personal visit to relate their experiences with the unnatural. 
Unnaturable. 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 So they had considerable amount of handwritten papers, and it detailed several sightings. So this is kind of interesting. So starting in October of 1966, they first reported that they saw an oval metallic object with holes in the bottom in the sky. Hmm. So again, this is an individual reports that they're sending in or individual phone calls that they're making. They had kind of like a binder of information. They insisted on a one-on-one meeting and somebody comes out to investigate. And so he's writing a report and this is the first case they give him is this sighting in October. So then from November to December, the mother and daughter, it's a family too, I guess too, it's Mr. and Mrs. Marlowe and their daughter, They obtained a Ouija board. Five days later, they started to hear a beeping sound. Hmm. In January, the Ouija board told them to look out the window. They saw a bright red object flying low, then two brilliant flashing bright lights departing to the east. The witnesses claimed that they didn't take the board seriously, but then go on to say that the experience made them realize they were receiving communications from them. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> so it doesn't just contact ghosts. Aliens too. Aliens and ghosts. Ouija board. So there's a... Ah, oh, damn, I didn't know that. <laughs> no, there's additional dates and statements that are similar. And then on February 22nd, they witnessed a bright blue streak across the sky. And somebody in the group, I'm assuming one member of the family, said they'd seen something similar before. March 2nd, the witnesses describe white lights stopping and then moving in the opposite direction. Now, mind you, they lived, uh, they lived quite close to an airport. The witness called the local, I don't know what this is, N-I-K-E? Do you know what this is? They called the local N-I-K-E. I, yeah, they make shoes. Yeah, well, besides the shoe company. <laughs> no, I have no idea. I don't know either. I Googled it, but I didn't find anything. She said that she needed, quote, someone to testify to my sanity, which by now is beginning to dwindle, unquote. The conversations hmm. with the Ouija board would continue, and the reports go on to say that the witness is attempting to remain level-headed while talking to him, I'm assuming, but the emotional strain was obvious. Hmm. Hmm. Let's see. There's also was a strain caused by uh, something she witnessed, or maybe substances <laughs> no, that she was ingesting. As she's talking to him, she's becoming <laughs> more and more emotional. Is what I think it means. So they had an additional okay. sighting they're describing to the investigator on March third. He says he thinks it sounds like the garment bag, which I was just discussing. March 6 concludes the interview and the end of the documents. They observed a white star-like object for 45 minutes, and this was the day that Mr. Marlowe would contact Major Quintanilla and Mrs. Marlowe would be called back by the investigator. So the investigator goes out. This is uh, William Powers, and he sits with the couple in their home. He spends time with the family. There's five people total during which multiple UFOs were observed by the investigator in the presence of the family. And he says the ones that were not airplanes were planets or stars. Hmm. Naturally. (laughs) So he's there with the family, (laughs) I imagine, and they'd be like, there's a UFO. 
You'd be like, that that's actually a oh. star. <laughs> There's a UFO. Like, oh, what? Oh. That's actually a plane. <laughs> yeah, no, that's <laughs> just the big dipper. What that pulsing that pulsating light that's uh, rocketing back and forth across the sky? That's just that, that's the big dipper. Now the conclusion mm-hmm. by the investigator was that the first <laughs> object noted by the couple <laughs> probably led to the further interest of the family in UFOs. And he said the first object was an unconventional sighting that was actually reported elsewhere from other witnesses. Huh. Now, I couldn't find any reports. I was really sad of these other witnesses. But uh, I thought that was interesting. They might have had a legitimate experience, which kind of freaked them out and led to them kind of paying more attention to the skies and looking for UFOs. So the conclusion of the report was that the observers have been watching UFOs for months and months. Various descriptions were provided, and the investigator felt that the sightings were either aerial or astronomical. The witnesses claimed they were being watched over the last three years by, quote, beings who had talked to them through the Ouija board. Well, you don't know how they're talking to people. Maybe they are talking to them through the Ouija board. I'm not providing judgment. I'm just reading the report. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds reasonable to me. Yeah. Why yeah. not? So, so that's that. That's a good, I like that. That's a fun case right there. <laughs> uh, okay. Hey, not as good as seeing a UFO inside the TV, but hey, it's still pretty good, you know? Yeah, yeah. I liked it because it was was a whole family, and they're just confused by like landing patterns at the at the airport. Yeah, that's actually how I found my next case. I'm assuming you're all finished over there. Yes, I am. All right, king of the segways here. So that's actually how I found my case was that it was one of the cases preceding a case that happened on Santa Rosa Island near Florida. And one thing that caught my attention from that case, by the way, was that. It had a card saying that here there's two photos enclosed and yet no photos. That's really disappointing. Yeah. Also a little suspicious. Just a little bit, you know, where's the photos? Blue Book had them because they had a card for them and then they're not in the files, unfortunately. But hey, it could be, could be they just got misplaced as well. That is definitely a possibility. For example, in this file I'm about to read to you, there was one page from another case called the Maury Island Incident, which uh, Rupert talks about in his book, just one page just kind of stuck in the middle of the file. <laughs> so, I mean, this stuff does get misplaced, I suppose. And um, the the people who scanned this were probably scanning them at a very rapid pace and they weren't going over their ever, everything with a fine-tooth comb to make sure it was all organized properly. They are just scanning the pages in the order they were given, I'm guessing. I don't know. But anyways... My case that I have to end this episode uh, upon, which episode to end on? I don't know. In uh, which? <laughs> damn it, you're an agent of the U.S. United States government. Anyways, <laughs> so this happened on, uh, it looks like the 20, 25th or 23rd. It's It's got a blot over. I'm sure the following pages will have it. Anyways, it's uh, the uh, 20-something of November, 1949, and it happened at the Mount Palomar observatory in california and uh, it was a ground radar observation no photos and it says that the conclusions are that it was other equipment malfunction well it's a 45 plus page i think 47 page file 
which caught my attention, by the way, because when you're going through there, if it's a one to three page file, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad report, but generally that'll mean there's not as much data in the report. This report had tons of stuff in it. So if, if even if it ends up being something mundane, a 45 page report is still going to have quite a lot of detail available for it. And that's why it caught my eye. Did you read all 45 pages? I did. <laughs> of course I did. Why? Come on. Kudos to you. That's how you spent your day, though. Yeah, come on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some of the pages were repeats, not that many of them. So maybe it was only 40 pages. I don't know. Anyways, the brief summary says, Flying disks first observed near the observatory at Mount Palomar, California. A recording Geiger counter was so activated at the time of these sightings that it went completely off scale. That's the brief summary of sighting, and, you know, needless to say, that definitely caught my attention, as did the comments or the conclusion. Their evaluation definitely caught my attention as well. If evaluation. Equipment malfunction. A complete recheck of the counter was accomplished, and a faulty fuse clip was found. And that right away kind of got my, uh, my spidey senses tingling. So I'm like, wait a minute. But they said flying saucers. Were there flying saucers or how, how did they report flying saucers? And it was found to be the result of a faulty fuse clip. I've got to read this file, <laughs> you know, like at this point, I don't have a choice. I have to read this file to find out what in the heck they're talking about here, because those two things, the, the summary and the conclusion almost seem like they're from two different cases, right? So something weird is going on here. Let's get to the bottom of it. All right, so first off, we got a bunch of different stuff in this file, and I'm not going to go through the entire file because that would take quite some time, and we're already getting close to an hour here. But let's start with a document from the Department of the Navy, Office of Naval Research, Pasadena Branch, and it has an address here, 1030 East Green Street, Pasadena 1, California. So if any of you live in Pasadena, and you want to go harass somebody who's probably, you know, not the Navy any <laughs> anymore at that address. You know, there you go. There's the address. This is from the director, Office of Naval Research Branch, Branch Pas uh, Pasadena, to the Chief of Naval Research, Code 346. And the subject is details of an old report of unreal, or uh, it's kind of mangled, but unusual phenomena, I'm guessing it says, Forwarding of uh, the, and then it says the ref, AONR Washington restricted, and it's got a bunch of codes and stuff, December 1952, and then another one from 1949, and then 1950, and it has inclusion 1CY, copy of reference, um, and uh, B with ENCLS, enclosures, I guess, I don't know. Anyways, one, at the request of reference A, an effort has been made to discover additional information concerning reoccurrences of the type reported by this office in November of 1949. Reference B, Dr. Redacted of the Navy Electronics Laboratory, reports that no further incidents were observed, although the equipment was operated at Palomar until about a year ago. Two, Enclosure 1 is forwarded for the convenience of LCDR F.L. Thomas. It is believed to be a full account of containing all that was known at the time. Subsequently, the only development known to this office came in January 1950 when, in response to further reports of, of erratic equipment behavior, 
The apparatus was returned to NEL for a detailed check. A faulty fuse clip was found. According to reference C, very slight jarring of this clip produced a visible arc together with a spurious signal that indicated on the on the oral alarm and an aberration of the recorder pin. 3. If further details are required, this office will endeavor to supply them. So basically what this is, is this is a summary from the, from the Navy saying we looked into it and it turns out it's all just an equipment failure. And that's how it went down in the files marked as an equipment failure. But is that the whole case? Of course not. Otherwise I wouldn't be talking about it. <laughs> could we say that this was an equipment failure? Yes, we could, but we're not going to anyways. So the next page I have here is narrative of flying disc reports during the period of 14 24 October, 1949 in the vicinity of Mount Palomar, California. About the 16th of October, 1949, one of the scientists at the California Institute of Technology reported to the Office of Naval Research, Washington, that he had heard a fantastic story of flying disks being observed near the observatory at Mount Palomar. The unusual feature of the report being that a recording Geiger counter was so activated at the time of these sightings that it went completely off scale. If true, of course, this meant possibly that the flying disks were powered by some Ford form of atomic energy. Two different men at the Palomar Observatory had witnessed these incidents. Contact was made with Dr. Redacted of the, of the Naval Electronics Laboratory, who was operating the recording Geiger counter on a continuing basis. Dr. Redacted went to Palomar to investigate the stories and brought back the tape showing the unusual oscillations of the pen. Dr. Redacted could offer no explanation, although he was skeptical of any flying disc theory. Okay, so that's sort of an interesting little summary there, saying that, yeah, we can't explain it, but what this guy's talking about with these flying discs is obviously nonsense. So it has, uh, I'm skipping along here a little bit, but uh, the next thing is, uh, it, it was not likely that the reaction of the Geiger counter was the result of an atomically powered plane. And then the next item, skipping a little bit more, it was most likely that the electrical relaying or amplifying mechanism of the Geiger counter had been activated by a plane's radio, altimeter, or radar mechanism. This was particularly true if the Geiger counter and amplifier were not shielded. So skipping a little more down to the bottom of the page, arrangements were made for a plane to fly over Palomar and use its altimeter and radar to see if it would activate the Geiger counter. This was on or about 21st of October. Upon receiving a negative reply as to any unusual behavior of the Geiger counter, plans were made with Commander Air Force, Pacific Fleet, for a series of flights to be made at various times and altitudes in the vicinity of Palomar using radio, altimeter, and radar. Both conventional and jet planes were used. These tests were run on the 9th of November, 1949. The results were completely negative, i.e. the Geiger counter made no unusual recording during any of these nearby flights. So you could just say, okay, no big whoop, they had a theory, they tested it out, and it turned not to pan out. But there's a couple of really interesting takeaways here. Were you about to say something, Agent Ether? Well, I just 
That's some elaborate testing. Like, that costs money. That's the first and thing that came to my mind. It's time. Exactly. effort, you know, to prove something that turns out to be false because it's a silly premise anyways. Well, that's the thing. That's, that's what they start off by saying, ah, it's nothing. This is all a bunch of baloney. But let's go ahead and send up a whole crap load of airplanes and jets to test it out anyways, right? It's kind of a really weird thing. And like Ether was saying, that's that's was my biggest takeaway. Wait a minute. They don't have unlimited funds, and it's very expensive to fly these airplanes for no reason whatsoever, right? So why would they do that? You know, so that's one of the takeaways here. But I mean, there's a couple of different ways you could look at the material in this document, but yeah, so they say that there's nothing here, and they say that it was probably just the altimeter or whatever, and then they go and they fly over, and of course, it doesn't trigger it, but they still don't believe it. It's such a strange thing, but that's this is the, the really cool stuff you find when you're digging through these files is, you know, something that might seem, if you're just, you know, speed reading, if you're just reading through it real quick and not paying a whole lot of attention... You might just glance over it and not think any big deal. But if you pay attention to what's actually going on here, I don't know. You have to kind of stop and say, wait, wait, wait what? <laughs> what in the hell are they talking about here? And I also liked the, um, the, them saying that an altimeter could trigger a radioactive response because now I'm not an expert, but from what I understand, the way an altimeter will generally work is using air pressure. So they have like a pitot tube that collects air pressure and, you know, compares that to like, you know, um, to, to like a controller or something, basically, I, I guess, I don't know what the vocabulary would be, but I'm pretty sure that's how they, they have some altimeters work anyways, is using air pressure. How would that trigger a radioactive response? I don't know. And how would like a radio, how would a radio have, a, it doesn't make any sense. How would a radio wave possibly give you a radioactive response. I mean, sure, they both have the word radio in them, but two completely different things, right? Even radar, they mentioned radar. Radar is not going to give you a radioactive reading, as far as I understand. What do you think about that, Agent Ether? Oh, it's comedy gold. It's it's pretty weird, right? This, right. this whole thing. I, I read this whole page. I'm like, what the hell are they talking about here? <laughs> this, is, this is weird. Really weird. All right. Anyways... On to the next page. All right. Now, here's the next page titled Summary and Observations. It, uh, in the opinion of the personnel of ONR Pasadena, the objects cited were probably conventional aircraft, which appeared to be abnormal in design due to lighting conditions. <laughs> so you got to love that explanation, right? Hey, it could be. It's, I mean, that's absolutely possible. So give them a grain of salt, right? The tripping of the Geiger counter mechanism is unexplainable. Like, okay, <laughs> good point. Um, so skipping a little bit here, the attached graph, uh, the attached graph, enclosure three, showing frequency of the Geiger counter off-scale motions is of some interest. It will be noted that there was a definite peak of these occurrences on the 17th of October, the graph showing the time of occurrence during the day gives a random distribution. So um, the these graphs are actually in the file. Uh, I can't read them. I mean, you can I can look at them and I can see there's data there, but I have no idea how to interpret that data. It's a like a, a graph of stuff. I mean, it's kind of weird looking to me. 
But if anybody wants to go and look up these graphs, they are included in this file. This not being a visual podcast, there's no point in really including them. Uh, so yeah, skipping down to the bottom here. The personnel of the observatory and of the California Institute of Technology who jointly operate the observatory with the Carnegie Institute have made urgent requests that no publicity be given. They are afraid that if stories were published, it would give adverse publicity to the observatory, which they are most anxious to avoid. Accordingly, it is strongly urged that these stories not be made available to the press. So I just thought that was a little interesting little bit there. That last little paragraph I read, and it kind of makes me wonder just how many of these incidents went unreported because you know, if you saw something and you were working at an observatory, you're thinking, hmm, do I want a career or do I not want a career? I think I do want a career. And I was just thinking it's it's so strange. It's like if I saw uh, something, an object in the sky flying around and making strange maneuvers, and I would describe that object as a lumpy potato spinning around in the sky. And I told my friend and they're like, you're crazy. I'd be like, no, I'm not crazy. The freaking potato's crazy. It shouldn't be there. It's not my fault I saw it. You know, like, it's really strange that as a society, even to this day, and this happened in the late 40s and early 50s, even to this day, if somebody sees something strange, we consider the observer to be the one who's weird, not the thing that they saw. Now, to be fair, there are a decent amount of hoaxes and probably some sightings that can definitely be put under, you know, the psychological category or, you know, something that was observed and misreported or whatever. But still, I still think it's strange that um, people are so afraid of reporting things that they often don't. And in this case, luckily enough, they did report it, but they just asked that it doesn't get into the press. So I guess that, you know, that's that's a bonus there. But I just, that, that last little bit was just really interesting to me. Like, hey, we're going to tell you, but just please don't tell the press because we don't want anybody to find out that we saw this. All right, moving right along here. This is a statement by Mr. Redacted. And uh, we'll go ahead and take a look at this. So Mr. Redacted is Redacted, a man of about 48 years of age who has been with the Palomar Observatory since July 1937. On 14th October 1949, at about 1315, Mr. Redacted left the observatory and started to drive down the mountain to his home. The weather was good, clear overhead, some clouds about 45 degrees from the horizon and below. After going a short distance down the road, he observed some objects proceeding in a northwesterly direction, height about 5,000 feet above him, i.e. about 10,500 feet above sea level. Because of the unusual appearance of these objects and of the unusual sound, he stopped his car and got out to have a better look. He reported that he observed no wings or tail structure. The objects, numbering about 16 or 18, were flying in perfect formation, a V of Vs, and moving very rapidly. The sound was similar to that of jets, but not quite the same. Mr. Marshall has had occasion to observe all types of aircraft frequently and is cognizant of all unusual types. So there you go. That's what I was talking about. So this is probably Mr. Marshall is the name that's been redacted so far. <laughs> this is Mr. Marshall's report. 
and they just forgot to cross out his name in that part of the paragraph. So there you go. If you want to go bother somebody who's probably, unfortunately, no longer with us, you maybe could bother his grandkids and harass them (laughs) if you wanted to do some detective work. Anyways, in a matter of seconds, the planes disappeared to the northwest. He described them as being of silver-like color. No vapor trails were observed. Due to the high speed of motion, sound appeared to be about 35 to 40 40 degrees behind the line of sight. Shortly after this incident, Mr. Redacted called Mr. Redacted and advised him of what he had seen. Wait, hold on. About 30 to 40 degrees behind sound appeared to be... Okay, so that's right. That's what it says. So I'm looking at this and it says sound appeared to be about 35 to 40 degrees behind the line of sight. I wonder if that indicates like maybe they're traveling faster than the speed of sound and it was lagging behind the objects by that much. I don't know what that means. Anyways, shortly after this incident, Mr. Redacted called Mr. Redacted and advised him of what he had seen. A short time later, Mr. Redacted went into the room of the powerhouse where the recording Geiger counter placed there by the Naval Electronics Laboratory was located and noticed that the pin had made an off-scale motion to the right some time before. The time appeared to be approximately 13.15, i.e. the same time at which Mr. Redacted had observed an unusual object overhead. An effect was made, or I'm sorry, had observed the unusual objects, plural, An effect was made to report the incident to the Naval Electronics Laboratory that weekend, but contact could not be made with interested authorities. Dr. Redacted of NEL was advised of the situation on the following Monday and commenced his own investigation. It should be noted here that this Geiger counter had never gone off-scale before, except when it was unusually operated during... or when it was usually except when it was usually operated during calibration tests. So, before I go on to the next statement by a different Mr. Redacted, does anybody notice maybe some sort of um, problem with the idea that it was equipment malfunction there? Hell if I know. Anybody? <laughs> Hell if I know. <laughs> no, so when they said it was um, when the equipment malfunction, when they were describing it, right, they said they sent it back for examination, Remember they said that when the equipment was jostled, that it would make an arc and the needle would go off, right? But according to this, it sounds like nobody was even near the equipment when the event happened. And the chance of that being the first malfunction coinciding exactly with the UFO sighting, not impossible. I mean, people win the lottery all the time to, you know, astronomical odds, but that's like, Come on, you know. Very unlikely. Come on, that seems pretty, very unlikely. Pretty unlikely that it would malfunction at that exact moment just to happen to coincide with those flying objects. And also remember the date. We're talking about 1949 here. I I find it very unlikely that we had any sort of nuclear powered craft at that time. I suppose it's theoretically possible we did have nuclear technology at the time. But um, I don't know. <laughs> it would just be a little bit of a leap to go from, you know, propeller driven aircraft to, you know, a nuclear powered one in that short span of a time from like the early 40s to the late 40s. I find it a little unlikely. But anyways, 
Moving on to the next statement from the other Mr. Redacted. Mr. Redacted is the Redacted for the Observatory and has been with it since 1935. By the way, if you look up the history of the Observatory, you could probably look up who this was online, you know? <laughs> probably wouldn't be that hard to find it. anybody wants to know. He is a man of about 40 years of age. Mr. Redacted was first involved in the Flying Saucer story when he noted the operation of the Geiger counter as mentioned in the above report of Mr. Redacted. Although he is an electrician of considerable ability and responsibility, i.e. he operates and maintains the complicated electrical apparatus of the observatory, including the big telescope, <laughs> <laughs> like, like how they're using technical terminology there, he could offer no explanation as to the action of the Geiger counter. On Monday morning, 17 October 1949, this is a next page, at about 0720, uh, Mr. Redacted was in the powerhouse where the Geiger counter is located. While looking out of the window, he saw a small black object without visible projections going in a southwesterly direction at a high rate of speed. The sky was clear except for clouds which were beginning to form at a level estimated at about 1,500 feet above the observatory, i.e. about 7,000 feet above sea level. The object was beneath the cloud cover. At first, he was very reluctant to state what he thought he had seen. He said that at first he thought it might have been a bird. After making his observation, he turned to the Geiger counter and noted that it had just jumped off scale. The pin of the recorder returned to normal in a matter of seconds. Mr. Redacted also reported that he had observed about a week later, possibly the 21st, about 21 October 1949, a large object going in an easterly or southeasterly direction at a very high speed. It occurred about 1430. Although he could see the object clearly, there were no projections, whatever, uh, whatever, whatsoever, I don't know, it says whatever, I would say whatsoever, in the way of wings or tail surfaces. He observed it for about three seconds before it disappeared. No vapor trail was left by the object. He described it as being elongated, but slightly curved like a banana. No aberration of the Geiger counter was noted during this incident. And here's a third statement by another Mr. Redacted. Mr. Redacted is the Redacted Valley Center, California. While the representatives of ONR Pasadena and the Naval Electronics Laboratory were proceeding to Mount Palomar to investigate the flying saucer story, they stopped at the cafe at the foot of the mountain, which is operated by Mr. Redacted. Quite by coincidence, Mr. Redacted told of a number of unusual observations made by him. Outside his cafe are two miniature observation uh, observatories, are two miniature observatories containing a 15-inch and 6-inch telescope. A number of different uh, stories? Yeah, stories. Sorry, there's a, there's a typo there. A number of different stories were told by Mr. Redacted, among which the following are pertinent. He stated that recently he had seen on Friday, 21st of October at about 1430, a cigar-shaped object pointed at both ends without projections and was apparently well stabilized. The altitude, 7500, was estimated for the object. The object was dark in color and appeared to be 500 feet or better in length. 
After standing still for an appreciable length of time, it headed upwards at a terrific rate of speed, leaving no vapor trail. This observation was made with the naked eye. It should be noted that this observation appeared to have been made about the same time that Mr. Redacted of the Palomar Observatory cited a similar object. About two years ago, Mr. Redacted had observed an object through one of his telescopes. He stated that the object came in, was relatively still for a while, and then disappeared rapidly. The object appeared to be round and had around it a ring of some sort, such as the planet Saturn. When the object was first sighted, the outside ring seemed to rotate, and upon the objects getting away, the, co the contour, uh, maybe outer, part appeared to rotate in a direction opposite to that of the ring around it. Oh, maybe that's supposed to be center. It says, looks like C-O-N-T-E-R, so yeah, probably center. The center part appeared to rotate. That's an interesting um, story to go along and augment the other ones, but on the other hand, it kind of sounds like a tall tale to me, but whatever, we'll take it, we'll take it as it is, who cares? All right, now to finish up this guy's story, Mr. Redacted showed the visitors a newspaper clipping where he had addressed a local chamber of commerce at a luncheon meeting, narrating one or two stories of his unusual observations of flying saucers. When he asked the gentleman present if any of them had ever observed similar objects, fully 25 or 30 of the members present acknowledged immediately that they had seen similar objects, but had been reluctant to report them for fear people would think they were off the beam. I don't know what off the beam means, but <laughs> out of their gourd? I don't know. <laughs> so that that was by, you know, a civilian witness or whatever on the ground level, but I still thought it was very interesting. And I wonder if it was a case of him embellishing what he saw, or maybe he really saw those things. I don't know. But that third witness, it does seem a little bit exaggerated to me. I don't know. But we don't know for sure, so I thought I would include it anyways. Um, this next page I'll skip because it's sort of not quite as interesting and we're starting to run a little bit long here, as I can tell since Agent Ether is leaning over to look at the clock. <laughs> I leaned over once. But the reason I liked this is because it mentions a fella named Holloway and a fella named Liddell. And I was like, wait Max? a minute. Wait a minute here. Max Holloway? Is this... Is this a sighting by Max Holloway and Chuck Liddell? What in the hell? <laughs> Two of the coolest, most baddest ass champions in the history of mixed martial arts saw a UFO oh, and they're mentioned in uh, the same document. But uh, anyways, we'll skip that one because it's not. Uh, <laughs> it's it actually does have some interesting stuff, but um, maybe not as interesting as some other stuff that I'm going to get to right now. So we have another document that is the, has, has the subject trip trip to Los Alamos on the 23rd of October, 1952 facts and discussion one on 23rd of October, 1952 Colonel D L Bauer and captain E J Rupelt of ATIC presented a briefing at the Los Alamos scientific laboratory. After the briefing, Colonel Bauer and captain Rupelt met with seven people from the lab who were interested in the subject of UFOs. Previous to this meeting, several of the members of this group had met Captain Rupert and Major I.H. Herman at a meeting of the Civilian Saucer Investigation in Los Angeles. At that time, these people mentioned having some data on a correlation between 
the detection of some type of radiation and a visual sighting of UFOs. At the 23rd October 52 meeting at Los Alamos, more details on the above-mentioned subject were obtained. The first incident occurred several years ago at the Mount Palomar Observatory in California. A series of Geiger counters had been set up to study cosmic ray activity. One person involved in the study happened to be outdoors when he saw a V of Vs of shiny objects go over. He immediately went inside to the observatory and found that the counters had just pinned, i.e. gone up to a maximum reading. This naturally aroused the curiosity of the people on the project, and they agreed that if it ever happened again, they would look outside. Some time later it did happen, and they looked out and observed a dark object passing overhead. So this is an interesting document because it's talking about similar stuff that happened at other observatories, and it's also talking about it um, rather than from the, the present, but this is a couple years later looking back on the event. And it, it mentions that um, they're studying cosmic rays in Palomar. So I'm guessing that the, I, I think it might've said at some point, but I didn't take a notation of it, but I'm guessing that the Geiger counters are set up to be very, very sensitive if they're looking for cosmic rays. So we're not talking about looking for large amounts of radiation. We're probably talking about very minute amounts of radiation here is what they're actually looking for. All right. So number four, the Navy it was a new Navy cosmic ray contract, supposedly investigated, wrote a report and concluded that this was all due to a circuit failure. The people operating the equipment also checked and are claimed to have flatly denied this, saying that due to this circuitry, it would be impossible for similar failures to occur in all the circuits at the same time. So let's go ahead and reread that or just maybe highlight that, that the people involved, the actual scientists running the equipment said, no way was this an equipment, uh, an equipment malfunction or failure. That is absolutely impossible for this reading to be due to that. So I found that to be a highly interesting comment here in this letter. Number five, shortly after this occurrence, one of the persons involved in the incidents at Palomar moved to Los Alamos. He continued to be interested and also interested in some uh, he continued to be interested and also interested some friends in setting up the same type of equipment on their own time they did this and they also detected unknown radiation in two instances they were also able to correlate these with newspaper reports of the sighting of a ufo in these instances the people could not get outside to observe and had to depend on newspaper reports of ufos for correlations Similar observations of radiation from an unknown source were made on, and then it has four dates here in October, and the times of the observations. The equipment was kept in operation until December 1950 when no more pickups, uh, with no more pickups. At that time, the equipment was dismantled. Note the above was checked in ATIC Blue Book files, but there was no record of any, any incidents on these dates. This does not mean very much, however, since it is known that a lot of the incident files were destroyed about this time. What? Wait, hold on there a second. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Say, say what now? So this is, again, this is something that, as far as I'm aware, I haven't seen any official thing saying 
that they destroyed a lot of the files. And yet, here it is in the file that it's common knowledge that they destroyed a lot of incident reports around that time. It's possible that, for example, in Rupert's book, I read something about that and I just forgot about it or something, but that's still a really interesting comment in here, I think. Uh, And it's just kind of, it's frustrating because it's like, well, what knowledge have we lost or what data have we lost? And did they destroy the smoking gun? Is that lost forever or at least temporarily until we get another smoking gun or, you know, whatever. Um, I mean, we've gone over a couple things on this podcast that I would say is very close to a smoking gun, but not quite there. But still, it's still one of those comments that at first makes me go, wait, what? And then makes me go, damn it. <laughs> you know, it kind of at the same time. Anyways, moving, skipping seven, moving to eight. Um, it should be noted that all of the people involved in this were qualified scientists working at Los Alamos. They have checked every possible source of the radiation they can think of and cannot account for it. They have discussed this with many people, including well-known scientists visiting Los Alamos, and there is no ready explanation either for the source of the radiation detected or the correlation between visual sightings and the radiation. 9. Reports of these incidents were made to the security force at Los Alamos and supposedly were to be forwarded to the Air Force. As far as can be determined... They were never received at ATIC. And I just want to mention the first part I was reading. um, Remember, I said it was from the Navy. So that report was actually from the Navy. And it looks like this was an investigation done a couple of years after the fact, maybe in 1952. And they got that Navy document. But that was not something from the Air Force or Project Blue Book. Unfortunately, we don't have whatever they had was probably destroyed. We have what the Navy has, and the Navy says it was equipment malfunction. All right, point number 10. Along uh, along these same lines, attention can be called to the fact that a colonel from WADC visited ATIC several months ago and reported that the same thing had happened at Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And I didn't even bother to look that one up because I'm like, there's no time we're going to have to, (laughs) there's no way I'm going to have time to look into a third incident. But the point being that this uh, was not an isolated incident, but we had similar things happening in a couple of different places. So then there's a couple other things on this page that I'll go ahead and skip because we're running a little late here. And uh, I just have one more thing, which is a couple of letters and, um, I'll skip over this stuff, I guess, a little bit, but uh, I just wanted, I just thought it was interesting that, you know, you have a difference between, um, like, the public face and the private face. So these letters are basically uh, somebody, or, um, somebody at the laboratory is asking for a briefing or a presentation on UFOs from Project Blue Book. And I think I mentioned earlier in one of the documents that they gave a presentation at um, at Los Alamos, right? So here's a letter from Las, Los Alamos where they're saying, "Could you please come and give us a demonstration or um, give us a you know a presentation? I mean, on UFOs, we're interested." And this is dated the 21st of August, 1952. And yet there's that other part from um, the document that said, "Please do not let this go out into the public." So this shows that while they might have had a public face that said, we're not interested in this. The private scientists who were maybe contracted through the military, but probably weren't actual military people 
they were definitely interested in U.S. in the UFO phenomenon. So while they may have made public comments saying, ah, it's all bullshit, whatever, don't worry about it, you know, it's nothing, smoke and mirrors, Venus, swamp gas, whatever, they were actually interested in it and taking it very seriously. And although we, I won't spend the time to read these two letters, one to and one from the military, um, I would like to point out that it was addressed to a colonel. Uh, I'm going to ask you guys how you would pronounce this. B-U-T-M-A-N. <laughs> how Butman. If it was Butman, it would be spelled B-U-T-T-E-M-A-N. I disagree. Like Oh, it's 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 Butman. As in <laughs> it is Butman. As in the Deschutes Brewery Black Butte Porter. It's not Black Butt Porter, it's Black Butte Porter. But this colonel is not Colonel <laughs> Butman. It's Colonel Butman. Come on. Colonel Butman, where's the extra T and the E? Anyways, I thought I did a double take on that one. I was like, wait, the, the legendary Buttman that I've heard about all these years, I finally found him. <laughs> I thought no, that was, that's that's the yeah, go ahead, ETA. Oh, I was gonna say that's that's the Mothman statue. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> we have found that's the, the Buttman. Butt <laughs> <laughs> the top secret military Buttman was really the Mothman. All right. So I just thought these letters were interesting, and that's basically that in a nutshell. Uh, Agent Ether looks like she's falling asleep over I there. I am not. I actually have something to say. All right, go for it. Okay, I was I was looking up a, a YouTube video of Major Hector Quintanilla because I actually wanted to know how to say his name, uh-huh. and I stumbled across an old interview from the Times, and towards the end of the video, the News reporter asks, you know, has there been any UFO sightings at observatories? Because Major Quintanella had said that astronomers would be the ideal witness for these sort of phenomena, and he would definitely trust their judgment the most. But he stated that never in the history of Blue Book had any observatory reported any unusual activity. And yet, in this one case, just this one case, we have three different observatories involving, it doesn't, I don't know exactly how many, but more than one, probably, I would say maybe five or six astronomers. And if you remember, they saw actual physical craft, and yet, (laughs) they said it was equipment malfunction, if you look at the cover sheet, you know? So, yeah, it's, it's a little sus, just a little sus, right? That's what I'm saying. Anyways, I thought that was a really interesting case. And yet again, it goes to show that if you're reading the cover card and you're just looking at the summary, like what did they conclude it as? If you're only looking through the blue book files and you're only looking at the ones that are considered unknown, you're missing a lot of really good stuff. So this case, what was it? Was it aliens? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I don't, I don't necessarily think it was aliens, but I definitely think it was like a really interesting case that's worth discussion. And if I remember correctly, I think Rupel did discuss this one in his book, but I don't think he really went into that much depth in it. And he, if I remember correctly, he kind of concluded that it was probably nothing as he did with most things. But uh, I just, I think this is such a fascinating case because you don't just have, if it happened once, right? If it happened once, you could be, eh, maybe, maybe not. It could be a coincidence. But if it happened at multiple times at three different observatories, 
all right, now we're talking, okay, maybe it's something to it. Maybe there's something there. We don't know what that something could be. But if they're using very, very fine-tuned stuff to look for cosmic rays, um, gosh, if I only knew a physicist who could tell me a little bit more about cosmic rays. (laughs) Agent Ether, how hard is it to detect cosmic rays? It's easy. Is it really? Yeah. So you could just detect it with like your cell phone or something. No, but I mean, background radiation, I mean, you can detect it on any Geiger counter. Okay. So, but what I mean is, is the level of radiation for, um, for cosmic ray, how is that going to be similar to like, I don't know, the Chernobyl meltdown, right? There's no comparison. (laughs) So we're talking, so what I mean is my, my, impression here is that a cosmic ray is going to be very low level radiation. Right. right? I don't know how much radiation that would need to trip their detectors so that it would be at a maximum intensity. Oh, that's a good point. You know, I don't know if it would be a lot of radiation necessarily if they're just detecting low amounts of radiation. I'm guessing it, I'm just guessing that it being tripped um, doesn't necessarily mean huge amounts of radiation. Yeah. Okay. That's, yeah, that's what I was wondering. Um, if, if you looked at their, they have actually the the graphs where they were recording the radiation readings. You might be able to look at that and tell. I can't. I looked at those and I was like, eh, I'm not going to even bother. <laughs> I have no <laughs> idea what I'm looking at here. But, but yeah, so that's, you know, that's the interesting cases I had to look. And that last one I thought was really good. And I just sort of, the only reason I looked at it was because it was 45 pages and it ended up being highly interesting. I think that could almost have been an episode in of itself if you did a little bit more. Digging. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That absolutely. That could be an episode. Easily, that one could be an episode by itself. It could be probably two or three episodes, especially if I wanted to look into that third observatory, which I didn't even look into at all. And if you wanted to look into more like newspapers uh, reporting UFOs activity at the time, you could probably find quite a lot of information. I'm sure that case would lead into a lot of other things. But I just did the short, short version. And uh, you could all, obviously, anybody interested could look up the the Blue Book file if they wanted to look into more of what happened. And if anybody out there knows how to read Geiger counters, you could go look into the the printouts that are available in that file. And uh, yeah, if if anybody finds out anything more, go ahead and let us know. Yeah, man. It ain't going to be me. Tell you that much, I barely know how to read. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I almost demanded the graph, but last time I asked to see the papers you were reading, you gave me a really hard time. <laughs> <laughs> how dare you? How dare you? All right. So this week, um, I want to try it. We've talked about it before, but before we call it, is there, there, we have a couple of people left uh, in the audience who have lingered through this whole recording. <laughs> We've been here for, uh, you know, about an hour and a half or more, but at this point, um, probably going to edit some of that stuff out. But anyways, if there's anybody in the audience who wants to say hi or wants to, uh, you know, any comments or anything like that, if you want to raise your hand and come on stage real quick, I can, uh, I can go ahead and I can edit you into the episode. Anybody going once, going twice, three, two, one. Okay. I guess nobody this week. We'll try again next week. See if anybody wants to hop on. Um, they, people might not have a microphone handy or whatever. So uh, we haven't really done this before, even though we've discussed it off the episode, but for future episodes, if, um, if anybody's interested, we're going to try to do this as sort of a new segment to end at the end of the episode, to end things, to see if anybody wants to come on briefly and, 
say hello, ask a question, or just whatever, you know, tomfoolery and shenanigans you have on your mind at the time, then, um, you know, I, I think it'd be interesting to say hello to our listeners, basically. So uh, maybe not this week, but we'll try again next week, see if anybody's interested. All right. And I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. Anybody else have anything, uh, final thoughts or anything? Man, I ain't got shit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, there was a lot of good cases. Yeah. I, I like the blue book files. <laughs> I love these ones, man. No, I just, like, I, I could do I just this. felt like saying that. Yeah. You are referencing space balls there. I am. Yes. <laughs> love that movie. <laughs> yeah. I could. Uh, it wasn't the exact, it wasn't the exact same line is when he said it is we ain't got shit. Yeah. yeah that, but it's similar enough though. I got it. I got it. Or we ain't found shit. Yeah. Something, something like that. Yeah. They're combing the, de- they're combing the desert. Yeah. <laughs> they got, they got big giant combs because <laughs> mm-hmm. it's so stupid. It shouldn't be funny, but it still is, you know, <laughs> <laughs> God bless Mel Brooks. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> is he still around? Uh, I, as far as I know, I believe so. Right. I, I don't, I don't, I don't like, I think so. I don't like Googling oh. these people anymore because, because sometimes you Google them and they're not, a, not around anymore. And you're like, Oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. but anyways, let's wrap it up for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you could really help us out by giving us a good review, wherever you listen to podcasts and suggesting the show to your friends. Keep it strange. <laughs>